Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So this is, uh, this is where you live now? Yes. I've been here for about three months now. That's Danny Goddard, who I met up with outside his new apartment in San Jose's Willow Glen neighborhood. It's, it's a one-bedroom, one-bath apartment. A modest place. Nevertheless, he's glad to have it. I'm just very grateful that I have a roof over my head because, as you know, I was uh, homeless prior to that. Goddard was one of the many thousands of homeless Californians who were placed in emergency shelters over the last year as state and local officials raced to protect the unhoused from the COVID pandemic. He spent several months living in hotel rooms procured with federal pandemic relief money. They got me into like extended stay America into a hotel room. But the move to this apartment now marks the end of his journey through temporary housing and a brand new beginning in a permanent home. I didn't even know this program existed. So, yeah, it was just, it was a windfall. <laughs> windfall for Goddard, but this success story also raises a question. If the emergency response effort to get Goddard and many other homeless residents into housing is working, what's stopping us from helping many more? Why can't we just keep going until California's homelessness crisis is over? Hello and welcome to How To Bay Area, the show that explores how to get stuff done right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Keith Benconi. Today, we're going to talk about how to help more people get out of homelessness. So far, California's rehousing effort over the past year has gotten well north of 20,000 people into emergency shelter. So in a little bit, we'll be hearing about how advocates are hoping to keep this momentum going. Well, the good news is we actually know how to solve homelessness. But of course, 20,000 is only a small fraction of the 150,000 people who make up the state's overall homeless population. So we'll also hear about the challenges that, at least so far, have kept us from going further. We can't have a cookie-cutter approach because it just won't work. That's all coming up just ahead on How To Bay Area. First up, though, we're going to take a quick look back at how this emergency effort has unfolded so far. From the very early days of the pandemic, there's been widespread concern about what the health crisis could mean for the state's unhoused residents who, by definition, are unable to shelter in place and who also oftentimes suffer from medical conditions that put them at greater risk from COVID-19. The response has been a massive mobilization of resources to get homeless residents off the streets, out of crowded shelters, and into private shelter rooms. 
You may have heard of Project Roomkey. That's the state-backed effort to turn hotel and motel rooms into emergency shelters for the homeless. Uh, But there's been many other programs as well. All of this has been pushed forward in the hopes of outrunning the pandemic. But in early April of last year, the pandemic seemed to be catching up. We knew this day was going to come. We have been talking about it for weeks. Longtime advocate for the homeless, Jennifer Friedenbach, holding a fiery press conference shortly after the revelation that a homeless resident living inside a San Francisco shelter had tested positive for the virus. We're incredibly angry about this, and worse, we're really afraid. It was the first known infection of a homeless person in the city, and for many, the news came as a shock to the system. So we're asking that everybody that's out on the streets, that everybody that's in congregate shelters be moved into private rooms right away. Many were moved. Nevertheless, more shelter outbreaks soon followed, infecting dozens of people. And Mayor London Breed began to face fierce criticism over her handling of the rehousing effort. So I just asked for understanding. I asked for patience. But Um, even in the face of that criticism and those calls to move faster, Breed's response was to defend her administration's more measured approach. If I could open up every hotel room in this city and allow every single person to have a place to stay, knowing that will make a difference and keep everyone safe, It's not even a question whether or not we would do it. Holding them back, she said at the time, is not a shortage of hotel rooms. San Francisco has lots of those. But instead, a shortage of staffing. That is, the manpower needed to provide supportive services, like case management and counseling, for the people moving into the rooms. The reality is, the problems that existed in this city with people who struggle with substance use disorder and who struggle with mental illness have not gone away because of this pandemic. Ultimately, the city did manage to place more than 2,000 people in hotel rooms over the first year. That figure, though, still falls far short of the number Breed's critics had been advocating for. And those critics are still pushing for faster action. So the back and forth continues, but it's worth pausing for a moment to consider the explanation that the mayor was giving for not moving more quickly. That is, a lack of staffing. In the face of all the dire risks of the COVID pandemic, more outbreaks, more infections, more deaths, staffing was considered the bottleneck. It could almost sound like a bit of a side issue, or worse, a dodge. But the thing is, it wasn't just Mayor Breed making this case. Some homeless advocates were also warning against moving too fast. Their concern that placing formerly homeless people into hotel rooms on their own, without proper support, would be its own kind of cruelty. So, zooming out now from San Francisco, we're going to stick with that concern over staffing because, again, our question is, why couldn't this relocation effort move more quickly? And it turns out, if you ask the people who have been doing the work that question, this staffing issue is often one of the very first things they'll talk about. Concerns come from the fact that um, putting somebody alone in a room, you know, giving them the keys and saying good luck is, is not enough for many people. It's not, especially when you take people who have been living for many, many years outside with a group of other people. 
That's Andrea Erton, the head of Home First Services of Silicon Valley, one of the many shelter agencies that ramped up their services dramatically in response to the pandemic. I spoke with her recently about what went into that effort. Starting off, she told me about the challenge of isolation. So encampments, if you've never been to an encampment, they're very social places. People support each other, people thrive together, they survive together. And now you're taking that person and you're isolating them. Not only is that going to have a serious impact on their mental health, it's also going to have a serious impact on how they function. And that's why one of the things that we provide to many of the folks in hotels and motels is case management, an opportunity to see somebody to talk to somebody, to receive a warm meal. And of course, there's a lot of other forms of support that are needed as well. So uh, to make this all a little bit less abstract, let's speak now to someone for whom this kind of support ended up making all the difference. Because they have helped me tremendously. (laughs) It sounds like you're pretty touched. Yes, I am. (laughs) I'm, I'm very grateful for that organization. Talking about Danny Goddard once again, who we heard from at the top. I mentioned it was federal money that got him into those hotel shelters. But on a day-to-day basis, it was actually Home First Services that he was working with directly. Again, that's Erton's shelter group. Yeah, because if it wasn't for them, I like I said, I'd still probably be homeless in my car. As we heard, he does now have his own place. One bedroom, one bath apartment. But getting to that point took a lot of help from a lot of dedicated Home First staffers. Believe me, there are many people that were put on my case. You know, employment, benefits, housing. Of those different types of aid, employment was perhaps the trickiest. Backing up for just a second, Goddard's experience with homelessness began last August when he was released from a three-year stint in state prison. He came out directly into the pandemic economy. So his previous employers weren't hiring, and given his record, new employers weren't interested. I found myself kind of unemployed, so I couldn't look for an apartment right away, so I was sleeping in the car. When he got in touch with Home First and began receiving help, naturally one of their highest priorities was finding him a willing employer. Luckily, Home First has an employment specialist. She ended up writing a resume started sending out electronic applications to, I mean, all over the place. Simple steps, but the support made a difference. Just getting my name out everywhere, I was starting to get flooded with job offers. Including from Tesla, after Goddard applied to work on their Fremont assembly line. Next thing I know, you know, they gave me an offer letter. Home First staff were also instrumental in helping to find that apartment. So you add it all together, Goddard now has a place to stay, a job to help pay the rent, some extra financial support. He's now well on his way to being able to support himself. It's a dramatic turn. Again, though, all of this has been a team effort. They did a great job because there's no way I could have you know, covered as much ground as these guys do. All right, so lots of work that we're talking about here, but here's the big thing to keep in mind. Goddard's is a relatively simple case for the Home First staff. He was really facing down one major hurdle, a lack of work opportunities due to his record. So the solution, write up a resume, send it out far and wide, it's pretty straightforward. Labor-intensive, very hard to do when you're living in your car alone, but still, 
relatively straightforward. Others who fall into homelessness, though, have much more complicated challenges. They may suffer from trauma, from mental illness, drug addiction, all of which require more support and ultimately even more staff members to provide that support. So that's why, going full circle now back to the question of resources that we started with, that's why when Home First decided to expand their services in response to the pandemic, it was a major undertaking. It basically became a 24-7 operation for all of us. Andrea Erton once again, so we're actually going to be speaking with her at a bit more length now to get a better handle on the work that she and her colleagues do. Starting with that ramp up, she says all told, Home First has brought on 150 more staff members over the past year. At the same time, they've opened up four additional shelters and introduced a lot of new services. Now, because of the pandemic, we're providing deep dive mental health services, as well as drug and alcohol services. We're helping deliver food. The city has implemented porta potties and hand washing stations at the largest encampments. I mean, the work that has been done is just phenomenal. Right. And all that work has translated into thousands and thousands of people ultimately making it into those emergency shelters. Uh, One thing to point out, though, is that the number of people who have actually made it into permanent housing has been uh, much smaller. And uh, obviously, if we're talking about ending the homelessness crisis, that's uh, where we want to get people in permanent housing solutions. So why has it been more of a challenge to make that you know final jump into permanent housing? It's very difficult to place people who are in congregate living settings into permanent housing, mostly because the housing is so expensive. Um, the average you know, affordable one-bedroom unit is $3,000 a month. If you're on a fixed income, like disability, which on average is, I think, $986 a month, how are you going to be able to afford that rent? So uh, it's very difficult for people who are currently living in shelters to move forward into permanent housing, especially if they've been chronically homeless. So the numbers aren't as positive there. The numbers that are more positive are people who are currently staying in our emergency interim housing sites, like the bridge housing. Most of those people are attached to a subsidy or a voucher of some kind. So they're in a rapid rehousing program through the city or county, which means that the city or county will help you pay your rent for either six months or some some programs up to a year. And that will allow people to slowly increase their income in various ways. And other people, they just aren't applicable for the program because they're on a set income and they can't increase their income. So it's a challenge. So I I suppose taking this all together, what this really speaks to is the fact that there is no one story of how uh, somebody uh, ends up in homelessness or how somebody gets out of homelessness. Uh, Different people uh, have different life experiences, different needs, and uh, are going to need different kinds of support to uh, get back into housing and and re-engage with society. You got it, Keith. That's 100% right. You know, we can't have a cookie cutter approach because it just won't work. We've got the majority of people who become homeless are, are only unhoused for a short period of time. They're resourceful and they're able to resolve their situation on their own relatively quickly. But we've got one third of that population who's chronically homeless. And these are the folks who need our support. They need mental health services, drug and alcohol services. They're disabled. They're older and on a set income. So there's not a whole lot that they can do. So as a society, it's really our responsibility to step up and figure out how we're going to care for these 
people who are the most vulnerable among us. Right. And and so there's we, we use this blanket term homelessness, but there really is a difference in terms of the sorts of challenges that are facing somebody that is, say, uh, sleeping in their RV or even in their car night after night and somebody who's been homeless for perhaps months or, or even years. And at that point, you know, they lost even the stability of that sort of temporary shelter and ended up uh, in an encampment. So it really does speak to there are different steps along this path. There are, and there's data to prove that. There's significant data that shows if you're able to resolve your your unhoused situation within 90 days of becoming unhoused, um, you're good. But if you don't, there's a rapid decline that happens after that. And people spiral into all kinds of situations, whether it's anxiety, depression, it gets more and more expensive the more you lose everything you've had. Now you've lost all your ID and documentation and you can't prove who you are. So you can't apply for programs. So taking all of these complicated factors to heart, what do you think our listeners should know about what it takes to get people out of homelessness? Uh, What are some of the solutions that really do seem to work in getting people on a stabler path? Well, it's, it's the support. It's, it's, having an empathetic ear. It's a a stance of not judging them or blaming them for becoming homeless. We have a lot of people who are older who become homeless because they were caring and living with elderly family members who then died. And as a result, the family home was lost and now they're homeless. So (laughs) there's, there's a lot of reasons why somebody can become homeless and we need to not judge them for it. We need to empathetically work with them, figure out what resources they need what living environment might be best for them. Is it going to be an emergency interim housing site where they have their own unit, but there's this idea of congregate living spaces still, so they're very social and they have the 24 seven supports they need so they can thrive? Or is it somebody like you and I, who've been housed for a very long time on our own and can resolve our housing situation on our own quickly with just limited support. And once we get housed, we're going to stay housed. And given all the work that you and others have been putting into addressing this crisis over the last year, how hopeful are you that we are going to continue this momentum? Uh, I mean, when we talk about all these different kinds of support that people need, we are talking about dollars and cents. We are talking about real estate. We are talking about uh, putting homeless shelters in places where, you know, historically many residents have been pushing back. How how long do you think that this resolve is going to hold? I'm concerned that the energy behind this will slow down. We've proven what we can do. In a matter of months, we've built 82 units and, you know, put 82 people in them. So, I mean, it's proven that we don't need five or six years to build permanent supportive housing or affordable housing. We can do it modularly, we can do it cheaper, um, and we can do it more quickly and efficiently. I just don't want to lose traction in those areas. Um, I also think that this really speaks to the need when we look at ending homelessness, we have to stop it from happening. And how do we do that? We provide people, you know, the lowest income people in our county, the most vulnerable people with the resources they need to stay housed, which means affordable childcare, access to education, and some kind of universal living wage. So people can maintain their housing and afford to live in one of the most expensive places in the world. So clearly a lot more work to be done. You mentioned your concerns a second ago. What is your expectation? What do you expect to see in the years ahead? 
you know, I'm a, I'm a serial optimist. And so I can only hope that the work we've done the past year speaks for itself, that the emergency interim housing sites and bridge housing sites we've established are beautiful, they're well run, they're successful at housing people and keeping people safe and community safe. I'm hoping that the people in these communities will speak up. They'll say, hey, it's worked in my neighborhood. Look, my housing values haven't dropped. Look, the crime hasn't increased in my neighborhood. And the people who were homeless in my neighborhood are now living in a beautiful facility that looks like a little neighborhood. So where we all win. I'm hoping that people can see that. I'm hoping that people can, can see the added investment has actually taken us, it, it's, it's taking us further to solving homelessness. If they can see that, then maybe they'll be willing to continue to invest, that they'll be willing to continue to want to do the right thing for their unhoused neighbors. Andrea Erton, Chief Executive Officer of Home First Services of Santa Clara County. This is the How To Bay Area podcast, taking a look at how to help more people get out of homelessness after a year of emergency pandemic response that spurred on a major rehousing effort throughout the state. So far on the program, we've been talking about that response effort and what it's taken to get all those emergency shelters open. But as Andrea Erton was alluding to in her last answer there, not everyone is sold on this project. So what about those who question whether or not this work should be happening in the first place? You've got people who really can be helped and should be helped, but you also have a lot of people who really help isn't what they need. They need something corrected in their lives. As a daily news reporter for KCBS, I do a lot of what we call man-on-the-street interviews. That is, uh, just talking to average people out in the world to get their views on the news. Now, sometimes I'm asking about news related to homelessness, and sometimes the views I get are quite candid. That's exactly what I found when I was out on assignment a couple of years back, looking for reaction to a proposed homeless navigation center in San Francisco. At the time, the project was stirring controversy due to its location, which lies right off the Embarcadero. Where you would support a navigation center being created? Yes, for, like for further south, there's plenty of, like you can take BART. Out and about with my recorder, I ran into this pair who felt that the eye pleasing, tourist friendly waterfront Embarcadero area was just the wrong place to put a navigation center. And so it should just be further away from neighborhoods. I don't know why they would have to be in a neighborhood. That's the logic that I don't understand. Then, our conversation drifted from the question of should the navigation center be built here to the question of should it be built at all. They had their doubts that the city's effort to help the homeless was really making much of a difference. They don't seem like just people who were responsible citizens who somehow lost their, their places to live. Those are the people that really, really you want to help. You see people, you think, all right, I feel sympathetic about this person. This looks like somebody who could take care of themselves if they got a little help. But you see more others who just don't seem to be interested in that help. They don't want to change themselves. These may strike some listeners as harsh words. But the truth is, while most probably wouldn't lay it out quite so directly, these are questions held by many Bay Area residents. You know, The questions of... 
Are some people simply beyond help? And if so, why put all this effort into homeless services when, after all, the problem just seems to be getting worse and worse year after year despite our best efforts? All right, so that is the tone of the skepticism that I hear when I'm up with my recorder. Now I want to take that skepticism on because it turns out there are people who have been looking into these questions quite deeply and come to the conclusion that yes, there are absolutely ways to make things better. Well, the good news is we actually know how to solve homelessness. It's really an issue of resources. Margot Couchel, a UCSF professor of medicine and the director of the UCSF Center for Vulnerable Populations. She says the best way to get people housed is to give them a home, much as we've been hearing throughout the program so far. This answer might sound a bit pat, but there's actually a whole body of academic literature behind the concept known as the housing first approach. This type of arrangement has been shown to be really effective at housing those who have the most significant behavioral disabilities. Just about everyone can be successfully housed. We're going to spend the rest of the program now speaking with Dr. Kuchel about why she's so confident that we do indeed have the tools to address this crisis and why she says it's still going to be hard to pull it off. First, I asked her to start things off by walking us through the history of how California's homelessness crisis got so bad in the first place. I think it might be helpful to get people situated in just the broader context that all of this is taking place within. So let's take a little bit more of a historical view on things. What is the root cause of this homelessness crisis that we're in? Because the nature of this crisis is different historically from uh, what homelessness looked like before about 1980. This is, you know, homelessness has always been with us, but this particular variety of it is somewhat new. Absolutely. And I and I think that's where there are some misunderstandings. We really think of the modern era of homelessness um, having started as a crisis in the early 1980s and really continued since then. People think about something else that happened then. They've heard about the closing down of psychiatric hospitals, and they think that that's the cause. But in fact, that is not the cause in any real sense. Um, the cause of homelessness and the other thing that happened during that era, starting really in the late 70s was a very significant retrenchment on the part of the federal government in funding affordable housing, which used to be um, something that the federal government funded at a much higher level. That has had an enormous effect. You include that with other things that have happened since the early 1980s, a really flattening of wages for low-wage workers, a real erosion of safety net services, widening income inequality. And all of those things have left us in a situation now where we have this really dramatic shortage of housing that's affordable and available to low-wage individuals. You combine that with the ongoing impact of structural racism, which has really um, left um, uh, particularly Black Americans out of um, family intergenerational wealth. Ironically, a lot of that is because of discrimination that was built into our housing markets in the, since 
the World War II era, when uh, the era of sort of the building of the suburbs and things that Black Americans through redlining and mortgage um, discrimination, things that were completely legal within our federal framework, left Black Americans out of the ability to own homes to a large extent and to build wealth through those homes. That has had just a major, major impact on our ongoing crisis. And one of the main reasons why Black Americans are so disproportionately represented among people experiencing homelessness. I could say the same for Indigenous Americans who are also Native Americans who are also very much overrepresented in this population. And so when you have this toxic combination of stagnant wages for low-wage workers, an erosion of the safety net, a lack of federal investment in affordable housing, leading to a dramatic under, um, you know, under, there's a not enough deeply affordable housing for low-wage workers. You combine that with the toxic mix of racism and you come out with our homelessness crisis. All right. And uh, the rest is sadly history. Uh, All right. So I think that that gives some good background on how we got where we are right now. Uh, Now I want to talk about how we get out of this crisis and uh, really want to bring into that conversation some of the skepticism that I think a lot of Bay Area residents are feeling at this moment that this is a crisis that can ultimately be solved. Um, So uh, speaking to that is, uh, I think, some research that you yourself have performed kind of testing this housing first approach in the field, uh, talking in particular about a study that you co-authored last year looking at the effectiveness of an intervention program known as Project Welcome Home. Uh, Just given the rundown on that, uh, Project Welcome Home housed a number of formerly homeless people in Santa Clara County over uh, a number of years. And what you found when you looked at what happened to the folks that uh, participated in that program is that uh, 86% of them uh, who were given housing managed to keep that housing uh, throughout the study. So... If we're looking for ways to get people into permanent housing solutions, it it seems like giving folks homes and uh, some of the services that went along with this program seems like it's doing the trick. Uh, On the flip side, though, there were some other findings that came along with this study as well. Um, It also found that a lot of these folks were still suffering from many of the same challenges that they faced when they were living on the streets. Uh, So many of them were still visiting the ER quite frequently. Uh, Many of them were still spending time in jail. Uh, Some participants even died. So it would seem that uh, this finding that the housing in and of itself is not a cure-all. It's not solving all of the challenges that folks are, are facing. What do you think should be the take-home lesson uh, from your findings in this study? So the really important thing to know about Project Welcome Home is that that project was really designed to find the most medically and behaviorally complicated people living unsheltered or unhoused in Santa Clara. We really went out and aggressively looked for the people who were the most troubled, Mm. who had the most complications. It Mm. wasn't just people. It was like the top 5% or less of the most medically and behaviorally complex individuals. Mm -hmm. We basically, that program was really designed to try to house the folks who people are most likely to say, oh, they can't be housed. Mm. You know, that we intentionally looked for people who had multiple trips to the psychiatric ER, multiple trips to the medical ER, multiple hospitalizations, multiple stays in jail, and we found them. And what was amazing about that program is 
basically everybody who we approached. And when I say we approached, I mean we had flags in the system. So the next time they showed up in the ER, someone approached them in the ER. The next time they went to jail, as they were leaving jail, somebody approached them. We really met them wherever they were at and just said, hey, do you want a chance to get housing? And basically every single person said yes. Of those who were um, randomly selected to get into housing, 86% of those, and remember, these are the most medically and behaviorally complex people, actually successfully got in housing. And once they got into housing, they stayed in housing. I think the truth of the matter is, is that housing um, is definitely the best medicine. But if you're selecting people whose health has deteriorated to the point where they are already, you know, facing serious um, health conditions and people who struggle with serious mental health and substance use conditions, you might not immediately um, extinguish their need for the emergency room care or others. But what you do do is you give them housing and dignity and a chance to stabilize their lives. Um, you know, one thing that we find, for instance, with the emergency room is when you get people into care, many of these folks, yes, they've used the emergency room often, but many of their other needs haven't been met. And so sometimes when you bring folks into care, you might save some of those visits that, you know, were just, um, just because of the chaos of their lives, but actually maybe a nurse came to visit them and found that they were having chest pain. The right thing to do, of course, is to send them to an ER. So I don't want people to think that you take people who have been incredibly sick and struggling and suffering for years and years and they get into housing and suddenly, you know, everything heals. I wish that were the case, but it wasn't. But I think the important point stands is that we found the most challenging folks in Santa Clara County, and 86% of them were housed within two months and they stayed housed. So I think the important point is basically everybody can be housed. Um, and I think that's really the critical point here. For most people who have fewer disabilities, they require a lot less services and the proportion comes much closer to 100%. Yeah. So I think that the skepticism that uh, I'm trying to speak to here is, so I know that there is something of a debate in the field of homelessness research uh, between those that say that housing should come first, you know, that the housing first model that we've been discussing so far, and those who believe that really the first thing that you've got to do is treat the underlying challenges of drug abuse or alcohol addiction. Um, and I, I think many residents struggle with that question as well. You know, uh, the thinking goes that if people still have these underlying addiction challenges, even when they've been housed, uh, if those challenges still persist, doesn't that blunt whatever intervention you might be putting forward. Uh, how much of a difference are we really making in people's lives if they're still suffering from drug addiction and, uh, you know, as, as we saw in that study, still visiting the hospital frequently, still uh, having run-ins with the law? So uh, speak to that concern, if, if you could. I, I want to be clear here that um, while people may feel like there's a debate, Anyone who looks at the evidence, anyone who looks at um, the real data and the real evidence, there is no debate. And there hasn't been a debate for 20 or 30 years. There is absolutely no question that housing first 
is is well supported by the literature. You get 80, 90, 95% of people housed as opposed to 5, 10, 15% of people housed when you demand services first. I think the other about, thing uh, that's... Yeah. Crucially, we're talking about uh, preconditions here, preconditions that somebody might need to uh, be sober before they were uh, granted housing. Absolutely. We did for the first, um, you know, first 15 or so years of the modern era of um, homelessness. That was the philosophy. The stepwise, mm-hmm. you sort of needed to prove your worth and then eventually you could get housed. What we found is some people were housed and sober, but most people remained homeless. There's no question in anyone's mind who actually studies this issue and doesn't look at it with moral, you know, with mm-hmm. a moral judgment or a religious idea or something. You know, I believe I'm a scientist. I believe in science. The science on this is crystal clear. Um, I think that, um, you know, from my mind as a physician, I look at mental health and substance use as um, diseases, challenges, often a response to trauma. Many people struggle with substances as a response um, to deep trauma as a sort of reason, you know, as a way to cope with um, terrible experiences. What I don't look at them as is signs that people are amoral or immoral. I think, I, you know, I like to say that if you look at the history of medicine, in the medieval times, we thought epilepsy was thought to be people possessed by the devil. And with our modern viewpoint, we laugh at that and we think, why would they think that? I am convinced that in the next 50 or 100 years, what I hope is that people are going to look back at our sort of moralizing way Mm. and looking at people with mental health and substance use as sort of possessed by the devil and think, what were they thinking? Mm. So we don't force people to live in the street because they have cancer. We We should not force people to live in the street as some sort of punishment for having a disease like a mental health disability. That doesn't make any sense. The vast majority of people with mental health disabilities and substance use challenges are housed, and there's nothing in those um, those problems that means you can't be housed. But I will say the flip is true. Mm. As a physician, it is almost impossible for me to address someone's health, whether it's medical problems, mental health problems, substance use problems, if they are unhoused, because people's first instinct is to survive. That's sort of That's what makes us human. And so when we basically force people to be homeless or when people are homeless, it's very difficult to address those issues. When people don't have to worry about where they're going to lay their head, when they don't have to worry about being attacked by a stranger, when they don't have to worry about having sexual assault, you know, just because they're out and exposed, when they don't have to worry about how hungry they are or that the rain is coming down, they actually have the headspace that we can begin to engage engage them in treatment. Just because we can't cure all forms of cancer doesn't mean that we don't treat cancer. Just because not everyone with a mental health disability can be, you know, completely restored to full health doesn't mean that we don't treat them, those individuals with dignity, with love, and that we don't try to help them heal as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's um, a really helpful perspective and uh, well put. Um, 
uh, channeling perhaps uh, another thought that may be going through the heads of uh, many Bay Area residents, when we talk about some of these solutions and talk about some of these interventions, uh, it certainly is the case that a lot of money has been funneled towards this problem already in the Bay Area. We're talking about tens of millions of dollars throughout the Bay Area uh, in, in, in multiple cities over, over uh, you know, years and years and years. Uh, why have the efforts that we have been putting towards this problem so far not ended homelessness or at least not stopped the massive increase that we are continuing to see? Right, because we haven't addressed the fundamentals. Mm. Because as long as you have only 23 units of housing affordable and and available to every 100 extremely low-income households, people are going to be homeless. As long as wages for low-wage workers stay, you know, stay, um, have not risen while income inequality has grown and housing prices have grown, we will not solve this. This problem is at a much larger scale than we've been putting resources in. And to be honest, I feel like local governments always get blamed for this problem and local money goes into it and then people are shocked that we can't solve the problem. The federal government could make investments in housing that could end this crisis really quickly um, because for them, compared to you know the expenditures on other issues, it's really not that big. But the issue is overwhelming for local governments to try to solve on their own. It seems like we've spent a lot of money, but we really have not even begun to chip away at the at the scope of the crisis in terms of the stagnant wages um, and the incredible lack of low-income housing. And, and so ultimately, when we talk about the scale of this problem and the sorts of things that we can do to address the problem, if we know the solution, is it really just a matter of mustering the money that we need? Is it really just a matter of getting more uh, vouchers into people's hands, getting more public housing out there, getting more uh, uh, emergency and, and uh, transitional shelters uh, available to people so that they can uh, get back onto the path towards housing? I mean, and, and if so, if it is just a matter of taking that approach, how far away are we right now from meeting the level of funding that we'll need? I mean, in San Francisco, as we've mentioned, there's uh, Measure C that is going into place, and that's going to be a tax on large businesses in the city bringing uh, hundreds of millions of dollars towards uh, homeless uh, services uh, each year. Uh, how, how close are we to getting to the level that you're saying we need? I think that, um, unfortunately, I wish I could say that any of these measures would solve it. And unfortunately, these problems are deep crisis of income inequality, of racism, and of a shortage of affordable housing sort of came from policy decisions made over decades and sort of um, philosophies made over decade. And it's going to take a lot of work to undo them. There's no easy fix here. But this is not rocket science. We need to be able to create the housing. It is notoriously difficult to create housing in California. We're going to need to upzone some areas that have been downzoned, and we're going to need to get a lot of support from the federal government and from the state government. Um, braided together with these local um, local initiatives to raise enough money and change our practices enough so that we can actually live in the society that we all want to live in, where everybody, every child goes to sleep at night in a home, every adult goes to sleep at night in a home, where losing your job or getting sick does not mean that you need to sleep on the streets. And in closing, what would be your call to action? I imagine if anybody's listening to this program, it's likely because uh, homelessness is something that they are concerned about. For those concerned residents that 
want to find some way to address this problem but aren't sure how to do it, what what is your call to action? Great. The first thing is is to get educated. And as you get educated, to join us in pushing back on this individual narrative that homelessness is called, caused by mental health and substance use. As a physician, I can tell you, I'm not afraid of those diseases and those problems. We know how to treat it, but we can't do it without housing. To really see the underlying structural issues, to be the person who contacts your representatives at every level of government, local, state, and federal, to demand an effective end to this crisis by employing evidence-based practices. Really, we need more money for housing, more support for housing, and we need to follow the evidence here. And finally, to be the person who shows up, who does not stand up against um, projects, you know, programs, housing, low-income housing being built in their neighborhood, which really becomes a big drag on everything. It's not enough to say you believe in housing, affordable housing, if you don't want it next door to you. We need everybody to say yes to the development of um, housing solutions that will work for everybody. And then maybe lastly, I'll say to treat the people who are experiencing homelessness as your neighbors, to say hi to them. Um, and to um, and to really engage and get to know um, your neighbors who are experiencing homelessness. All right. Well, uh, I, I think that that's a good point to end on and also a, a really important point for all of us to keep in mind as uh, we continue to confront this homelessness crisis and uh, look for solutions. Uh, bringing us a, a number of solutions right there has been Margot Cushell, uh, once again, a UCSF professor of medicine and the director of the UCSF Center for Vulnerable Populations. Uh, Dr. Cushell, thank you so much. Good to have you on. Thank you for having me. This has been How To Bay Area. Thanks for joining us. If you liked what you heard, please do take a second to leave a rating and review for the show on iTunes. It really does help us out a lot. Uh, signing off for now, for KCBS, I'm Keith Menconi. Back again soon. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.